Jesuitical is supported by the Hank Center at Loyola University, Chicago. On November 16th, the Hank Center welcomes filmmakers Simonetta D'Italia Wiener and TJ Burden for an in-person screening of Unguarded, a film that tells the story of successful restorative justice work and prison reform in Brazil and America. All are welcome. To learn more about the Hank Center and its programs, please visit www.luc.edu slash ccih. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashlyn McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. It is great to be with you. On It's finally fall in New York. Mm-hmm. There's a, I hate, 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 hate that time of year where we, uh, I think we gain an hour of sleep, but... I guess now we just go home in the dark. Every yeah, and go work. to bed at 6 p.m. Yeah, really rough. <laughs> it is very weird. I've been waking up early, which is not my MO, and like getting to the office before 9 a.m. Yeah, just I haven't I'm, like, been I'm doing up. That. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just tired all the time, but excited to bring the energy because it's not yep. morning. It's probably dark outside, even though it's like four o'clock here. But great show coming up this week. Yes. Uh, but first, before we get to our guest, you have a great story about our. Our drink this week. week. Um, So we're drinking wine. Uh, So this is just like scenes from uh, the offices at America Magazine. We have mass once a week as a staff, which is really great, great part about working here and working with Jesuits. And we're in the middle of some transitions right now. So like some sacristan duties got handed off. Some did not. Some boxes Um, got moved around. Yeah. (laughs) And we couldn't locate the sacramental wine for communion. And so frantically, a colleague of ours was running around and he's just like, oh, does anyone have a wine opener for this bottle? And I'm like, Ricardo, it's 10 in the morning. And he goes, no, it's for mass. And I was like, okay. And then I look at the wine and it's a bottle of Barolo. And if you don't know, that's like a No one knows what that means. Okay. Well, it's a really (laughs) nice Italian wine. And I was like, what is this for? How how nice are we talking? I, like, I mean, they can go up as high. I don't think, I think this is probably closer to around like $40, $50 a bottle. Yeah, but still, yeah. Um, and I was like, we're probably not going to use this for mass. Um, we can go look for the Sacramento wine. And eventually we did find the Sacramento wine. But evidently someone had just like found this bottle and placed it in the chapel uh, for I mean, Jesus mass. did save the best wine for last. That's so true. We but can't have it at mass. We could really? have, <laughs> but I thought it would be more appropriate to uh, have it on Jesuit. Okay, cool. Um, so that's what we're drinking this week. The Barolo that I rescued from uh, mass. So, All right. Cheers. cheers. And who are we talk about the notes you're getting? No, from- <laughs> uh, well, I don't know if other listeners, I don't think I've talked about this in the podcast. I'm studying wine right now, like for a certification. So I'm, Extra, extra annoying around the office. Uh, but yeah, no, this is great. I'm sniffing it. It is delicious. Yeah. <laughs> Racing acidity, red fruit, little leather on the finish. No, it's uh, that's my wine snob comment of the week. Who are we talking with this week, actually? Uh, well, this week is National Vocations Awareness Week. So we are talking to Deacon Steve Kramer. He is the Director of Homiletics and Recruitment at Sacred Heart Seminary and School of Theology in Franklin, Wisconsin. And he's a really interesting story. He's a deacon, but he's also a professor at a seminary that trains priests to 
be um, to be great homilists, yep. something we all we all want more of. So he he has a lot of great thoughts on how we can address our current priest shortage from two different angles, really. Yeah, we Deacon C was brought to our attention because he has a he had an article in uh, Deacon Magazine that was basically advocating for becoming more okay with the idea of uh, late vocations to the priesthood. So meaning like guys that are older um, who maybe they've worked a career already, maybe they've gotten married, a spouse has died. For whatever reason, you know, they get to 50, 60, 70, and, you know, feel like God is calling them to the priesthood. Traditionally, dioceses and religious orders have kind of said, eh, no thanks. And on the other end, he was saying we need to get more comfortable with allowing younger guys to be ordained to the diaconate, which that has sort of been thought of as like, that's gonna that's like a, a working man's retirement ministry in the church, right? You don't see a ton of young deacons in the church. Yeah. So stick around to hear Zach Davis be recruited to the <laughs> diaconate there was by a soft Deacon pitch. Steve. Yeah. <laughs> um, but before we get to that conversation, we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. And this week we've got a we've got a hard story um involving sexual abuse. And we wanted to bring on our friend and colleague. Colleen Deli of the Inside the Vatican podcast to help us uh, break down this uh, latest revelation of sexual abuse coming from France. So welcome back to Jesuitical Colleen. Hey, wish I was coming on to talk about something better. Yeah, yeah, us too. Um, so could you give us the, the headline of this story coming out of France? Sure. So Cardinal Jean-Pierre Ricard, who is a really prominent French cardinal, admitted in a letter that was read aloud to the meeting of the French bishops conference this week. So I think it was delivered on Sunday, but read aloud, made public on Monday, that he had abused a 14-year-old girl uh, 35 years ago and doesn't go into a lot of details. He says that he behaved in a reprehensible manner. He also says that he has sought her forgiveness, but that he knows that this has had negative effects throughout her life. And that he is putting himself at the mercy of the legal system and presumably also the Vatican will investigate. Yeah. At that same meeting, the president of the bishops conference in France announced that 11 serving or former bishops um, are also under investigation for sexual abuse. And this comes one year after an independent investigation uh, found that over 70 years in France, more than 200 thousand children, maybe up to as many as 330,000 children had been abused by clergy. And which is just, there's a lot to unpack here. Um, so maybe just, Colleen, what were your reactions as so, someone both as like a young Catholic, but also someone who's been professionally covering the church for a few years now? I mean, y'all remember what it was like to work at America doing this job in 2018. That's exactly the kind of situation that the French church is in right now, where, you know, it was just like a new awful abuse story every week and people's faith is really shaken, their trust in the institution is shaken, and I'm right along with them. I think in the case of Cardinal Ricard, my the thing I really can't wrap my head around is how you can live with yourself, how you can accept higher and higher appointments. He was president of the French Bishops Conference twice. He serves on the Vatican's dicastery for the doctrine of the faith, which is the Vatican body that investigates abuse cases. 
how he could continue to accept those appointments knowing this was in his past and keep it a secret and then only let it out now, which also raises the question of why let it out now. You mentioned 2018. And for those who don't remember, that was you know when we saw the Pennsylvania grand jury report, which documented pretty widespread sexual abuse in the state of Pennsylvania. And also the revelations that former Cardinal Theodore McCarrick um, had been credibly accused of abuse too. And the parallels with McCarrick, I think, are striking because you know we had McCarrick who championed and spearheaded a lot of the reforms in the church in the United States in covering up abuse. Also with someone all in with all this in his past, right? So I, that, that was the first thing that came to my mind is that this is like Francis McCarrick situation. Yeah, and the Vatican may follow their kind of playbook from McCarrick here. It's possible that we'll see Ricard removed from the, the College of Cardinals, much like McCarrick was. And possibly laicized, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, one thing that jumped out to me is um, the fact that this was 35 years ago. That's three years before I was born. In 2018, when there were all these revelations of abuse, like you could at least tell yourself, okay, this was mostly happening in the 50s and 60s and 70s when much of U.S. society also had very ignorant ideas about, you know, whether you can treat pedophiles and how to do that. But this was this was this was deep into the 80s. And so I, I it just that part of it shocked me. I thought I couldn't really get shocked that much anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this for me, I feel like there this is like a. It reminds me that there's this new f- another phase in fighting sex abuse in the church. Like phase one was just like stopping the abuse ha- from happening, right? And I think a lot of the reforms that were made um, in 2002 did just that, right? Like they were there were a lot of safeguard measures put in place to like just stop what was happening. Two was you know and we've done a probably like C minus job of the this at best, which is apologizing and making amends for past abuses, right? That we know about. Mm-hmm. And, and but this third third phase of there are people still actively in ministry and governance, like at very high levels, that have some like pretty big skeletons in their closet that we don't know anything about. And you mentioned like eleven bish- French bishops being investigated right right now, like, former or active. That like is not a small number in a country like that, right? It's ten percent of their bishops. They have like one hundred twenty bishops. You don't have like ten percent of pilots like crashing planes and just being like, oh well, we'll we'll just set up a commission to study how we fix this problem, right? Like mm-hmm. that's a, that's a, the house is on fire. Yeah, and and he was working at the CDF, the the congregation now dicastery that investigates sex abuse cases. In like throughout the 2000s and 2010s, mm-hmm. like this was someone who was responsible for adjudicating what happens to priests who have been accused of, abuse. or at least he was aware of yeah. that, that. Right? Yeah, like, it's not know. clear how deep he was into investigations, okay. but still, he was on that body. That the hypocrisy is just like it brings a bile in my mouth. Yeah, and there were supposed to be reforms put in place, right? Like there's. Um, Vosestis, which was supposed to set norms for how bishops, when they're accused of either... That was Pope Francis's uh, motu proprio in, yeah. in 2019. Yeah, and this was the follow-up to, to that big yeah. meeting that he had in 2019 where he made all the bishops from around the world come and listen to survivors and, and get on the same page about this. And there was, I remember all this talk at that meeting about transparency and how important transparency is. And I I look at this and I'm like, where is the transparency? You know, we've we've had these measures, but they're really hard to enforce. 
To that question, what has the Vatican said so far, if anything, in response to this revelation? Nothing. Yeah, that's what They're recording this on Wednesday. <laughs> yeah. Um, we don't have anything yet. There have been a couple other cases, too, of bishops that are supposed to have been being investigated under the new norms set by Pope Francis that have led to some kind of like not so transparent results. Is that mm-hmm. is that right? Yeah, it's true. Um, actually, the other one that France is reeling from right now is the case of Bishop Michel Santier, who was a bishop of Créteil, which is a diocese just outside of um, Paris. And he was allowed to retire two years ago, uh, citing health reasons. And the Vatican just said, yep, his his resignation was accepted. They didn't they didn't have any problem with this being the story that he presented. And we just found out recently that he actually was investigated by a Vatican tribunal, found guilty of sexual misconduct. And the details of it are disgusting what he was doing with these these two guys. But it's again like the Vatican will allow people to retire and not say that it was because they were found guilty of abuse. And that is a huge problem. That is something that if they're serious about this vocal commitment to transparency they've made, that they need to be revealing. Yeah. And, you know, we don't talk about every single facet of abuse in the church on this show, right? Like every time there's I don't know, a, a case settled or another accusation made or a, a thing on earth, right? Like it would be, you could do a podcast pretty regularly about that. We we want to bring this to our audience's attention because like this is really important, not to say that every issue isn't important, but like the structural levels, right? Where we've gotten commitments from from the Pope, from other Vatican officials about these reforms that are happening. And when we see that they're they're stumbling a little bit. Like part of our role is to just name that, name our frustration, name our kind of disgust with the situation, and 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 ask what's next, right? Which is not to say they can't clean this up. I, I hopefully at a minimum, what would be good to see is they at least follow the playbook that they followed with uh, former Cardinal McCarrick. Um, that's still in play, but there are bigger questions still that we need to ask. I think. And we're having this conversation in the midst of National Vocations Awareness Week, and we all recognize the tension of, you know, talking about this story and also, like, the need for a church to, like, replenish its ranks. And we need vocations of all kinds that are committed both to the church and the world. But later on, we're going to be talking about specifically, like, vocations within within the church. But it's important to name that tension and, and talk about both of these things. Colleen, I know you guys get into it more on Inside the Vatican this week. So Mm -hmm. if listeners want to learn more, we're going to link to some documents and historical events. In this conversation, we'll link to some of those in the show notes if you want to go deeper. But if folks want to learn more, they can always check out Inside the Vatican for more in-depth coverage. Colleen, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And we'll talk soon. Thanks, Colleen. And now stick around for our conversation with Deacon Steve Kramer. Joining us from just outside Milwaukee, Wisconsin, is Deacon Steve Kramer. Steve is the Director of Homiletics and Recruitment at Sacred Heart Seminary and School of Theology in Franklin, Wisconsin. Welcome to Jesuitical, Deacon Steve. Great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for joining us. I think a good place to start, uh, so 
we're having this conversation around National Vocation Awareness Week um, and honing in on your specific one, which is that of the diaconate. Um, I feel like this is a, somewhat of a stupid question because deacons are pretty plentiful and pretty visible in the church, but could you just maybe explain what a deacon is? Uh, where did the permanent diaconate come from? Uh, and what does like a typical, you know, a day look like for you? That's going to depend on each individual deacon because there's so many different ways that you can exercise your ministry. You know, sometimes we look at uh, deacons, people have this notion of somebody who is there to help father. That's not the ministry of the deacon. The deacon has a very distinct ministry in the church. Have you have you met any fathers that have had that thought too? Um, well, <laughs> <laughs> I won't make I won't make you answer that. <laughs> No, actually, I think that most uh, most priests at this point in time understand the role of the deacon. And uh, in that, there are some deacons who are still working their full-time occupation. The vast majority of deacons have a full-time job. They do their ministry nights, weekends, in between. A full-time job outside the church, just a lawyer, a banker, a teacher. Yep, could be whatever. I uh, Personally, for myself, I spent 30 years in a construction business. I was in the stair building business, building beautiful wooden staircases and railings. I helped to run a 50-man shop out on Long Island and uh, did a lot of sales and, and measuring and layout and design. But I, I'd say that a lot of my ministry, and I've done a lot of church ministry, uh, this may be 29 years I'm ordained, I did a lot of ministry outside of the church. because the deacon is supposed to bring the church to the people and the people to the church. That is his specific ministry. So we're always ordained for the three munera, the three tasks, ministry of the altar, ministry of the word, and the ministry of charity. I write for the Deacon Magazine, and I just wrote an article about uh, discerning the correct age for the diaconate. You know, for our priests, our priests can be ordained like 26, 27 years old. But for the permanent diaconate, you must be a bare minimum by canon law of 35. And the reason being is that because about 96% of the diaconate, the guys are married, they want to make sure that you can uh, take care of your own family, your business experiences, as well as your ministry. So like I like to say, every deacon has three plates spinning in the air. Obviously, we have two hands, but you've got the plate of your <laughs> family and your spouse, the plate of your secular work, and the plate of your ministry. And unless you can balance it appropriately, it can be very difficult. And so therefore, your spouse has to really be on board with this. Are you willing to support your husband in this ministry? It's got to be a two-way two way discernment for sure, right? And, and, and if the spouse says no, you're out. I mean, it, it, it has to be that you are uh, totally committed to this. And this is, this is a vocation that's grown a lot. Uh, obviously, I mean, well, this is probably not obvious to everybody, but Vatican II sort of reinstituted this, this uh, ancient institution in the church. Yes. And we've seen a pretty pretty decent uptick uh, ever, right? Like it's not, it's sort of the counter narrative to the vocations crisis that we hear about all the time. Well, it depends on, you know, vocation. I mean, the deacon is a clergyman. So, you know, you have, uh, you know, every priest has to be ordained a deacon first. Every priest, as he goes through seminary training, uh, he'll be ordained a deacon typically for six months to a year, and then he's ordained as a priest. But he is ordained as a transitional deacon, meaning that he's only there for a temporary time period uh, learning that particular role in the church and preparing for priestly ministry. For myself and, and, and others who are permanent deacons, that is our role in the church. So for me, I was ordained for the Diocese of Rockville Center in 1994. 
I started formation, I guess, around 1989. At those days, it ended up being a five and a half year program for my group. Um, I was part of the biggest class, I believe, ever out of Rockville Center. We had 31 guys and it was wonderful. And how, how old were you at this time? I was ordained at 38. So you started formation when you were in your early 30s? Yeah. Yeah. I was like 32. So I, I was definitely on the young side. Uh, no, I was the youngest guy there. But I, I distinctly remember one of my classmates, his children went to school with my wife. So he was like 60-ish. I was 32. Two different ecclesiologies, two different understandings of church. Great guy. He's unfortunately since passed away. It was different for me because two of my kids were born while I was in formation. So when I was ordained, my youngest child was three. My next boy was four. My daughters were six and 12. Yeah, no, I was going to say, because I, as we've said, it's, you know, a, a growing ministry in the United States. But I have to say, I, I'm in my 30s. I don't know anyone who's considered the diaconate. I don't know any deacons who are under the age of maybe 50 or 60. So it's definitely, in my experience, these are older men. But you personally and have publicly advocated for, you know, considering it at a younger age. So why do you think that's important? Well, it's very important because, like, for myself— uh, and, I, and I go back, you know, to my, my time on Long Island. And for the first 16 years of my ministry, I, I, was, I was there. But when things happened in the community, I was there not only as the deacon of the church, but also as a parent. I was there as a member of the business community. Uh, when we had uh, difficult suicides or mass suicides, when we had uh, horrible train wrecks or whatever, I was also fire department chaplain. So I was embedded in the community in a lot of different ways. And that's really what the role of the deacon is, is to be involved in the community, to bring Christ to those who are there. Although they see us publicly in our liturgical roles, whether we're presiding at a wedding, baptism, funeral, uh, preaching at mass or whatever, it's in these other venues um, that, that, that you really make a lot, of, a lot of difference. Yeah, I didn't really understand that part of the role of the deacon before reading some of what you've what you've said about the subject because yeah I, I think of the deacon as the guy who sometimes says the gospel and gives a homily and and that's really all I've been exposed to so so can you explain either in your own life or just more broadly what it looks like bringing the church to the world for a deacon sure um, I just got to say one thing though you said that sometimes reads the gospel by the way if there's a deacon on the altar the deacon will always read the gospel. The priest will not read the gospel. Is the deacon's very specific ministry and role. That's why he carries the book of the gospel in, and he has a very specific role in the liturgy. If you have 16 bishops and a couple of cardinals there, there will be a deacon who will be proclaiming the gospel that day. Hmm. The homily, of course, is given to typically the presider, but often if it's a deacon in a parish, um, you know, we preach on a regular basis. Like this past weekend, uh, the way that we work at my parish is that my pastor, I have another deacon and myself, uh, we kind of split roles. So last weekend was my weekend. I preached all four masses. And, um, you know, one guy gets it all one weekend and you get a break the next weekend. <laughs> do you do you guys like battle over who gets who gets to preach what what reading or is that, it totally just matter to me. lots? Yeah, okay. I, always te- I always tease my students. I say, if you're a brand new deacon, trust me, you'll get the one from Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, that says, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? Uh, Deacon, you'll, you'll be preaching this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you can have the tough readings. <laughs> now, the, the church obviously like wants 
uh, guys to wait because they want the career to slow down. They want uh, family life to slow down. Kids get a little older. That wasn't the case for you, but do you do, do you see any merit in that argument? Like, are there times where it was definitely tough? Well, you know, it's it, 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 in some respects that's good, but realistically, you have to look at the man and what he is able to do. So, for me personally, I had the type of job where I could maneuver during the course of the day, and my people knew that. So, it would not be unusual for me uh, in my work. Uh, environment to be in you know a pair of jeans and work boots and a golf shirt working out in the field with some of my men and uh, oh Steve can you run over and do a committal service at the National Cemetery no problem I always had an album of stole and a book in my back of my truck I'd run in throw on an album of stole do the service take off my album of stole go back to work people had no problem with that they knew what I did you know everybody's got different gifts and talents same thing with priests. But for each deacon, it depends on the pastor that he works with. For me, I always had, I've had some really wonderful pastors and they saw my particular gifts and possibilities. They supported me through my masters, through my doctorate program or whatever. And they allowed me to do different things. That's not always the case. Some priests like to do everything themselves and that's up to them. But the deacon is ordained just as the priest is ordained for service and is ordained to celebrate a number of the sacraments. So like we're allowed to, to witness marriages, to baptize, uh, to celebrate the funeral rites, preach the gospel always. And the, the things we cannot do is we are not allowed to hear confession. Now, I hear a lot of things, you know. Uh, <laughs> we'll call it counseling. I, I cannot offer anybody absolution from their sins, but uh, there are times that people feel comfortable with me for various reasons. And to me, my ministry has always been working in tandem with my pastor. It's not that I'm better than my pastor because I'm married, and it's not that my pastor is better than, than me because he's the priest. We work together. This, this is a like-like ministry. So if either one of you came to me for counseling or something, and I said, listen, this is where I'm coming from, and perhaps this will be a good opportunity for you to try this. However, I'd like you to talk to Father because he's not married. He doesn't have kids. He's going to have a little bit of a different perspective so that hopefully between the two of us, we'll be able to, to, to help the people of God. And that's really what it comes down to. It's, it's really a team effort. Yeah. If there's someone in uh, his 30s or 40s right now and he's, his, his interest is piqued by this conversation, what, what are some questions he should ask himself or, or what, what would you say is important for especially a younger person who might sure. be interested in this call? I, I have a young man who's in my parish right now who is uh, halfway done with his studies now. I think he'll be 35 when he's ordained. Uh, he's got two little girls, and I'll tell you what I told him. <laughs> my wife and I met with him and his wife, and we laid out exactly how this works out. Uh, there's a lot of study. You've got four or five years worth of study before you're ordained. And there are time commitments that will be on your family. But you have to work out within your own family, how this will play out. So there are some people that say, well, you know, I can't be here this weekend, that weekend, whatever. Well, you're saying you want to be ordained for service to the church, so you know you're going to have to do certain things. My first thing is, is why would you want to be a deacon? Just like I asked my seminarians, why do you think God is calling you to be a priest? And you listen for the answers that come back. 
usually it's because you want to bring Christ to others. You want to celebrate the sacraments. You want to be with, you want to be with people and help them in some way, shape, or form. If somebody has that desire to serve, especially from the uh, aspect of being a deacon, you know, the, the word deacon comes from the Greek diakonia, which means one who serves. And the service comes in a lot of different ways. There are guys who, in addition to their liturgical ministries at the parish, I have fellows that they do truck stop ministry. We have a fellow here in Milwaukee who has been working for 20 some odd years. Um, basically what he does, the name of his ministry is Franciscan Peacemakers. And he literally works the streets and takes ladies of the night off the streets, gets them housing, gets them out of the life and brings them, you know, back into mainstream society. We have people that do airport ministry. Want to get on a plane and you're scared? Come over to Deacon so-and-so. He'll pray with you before you get on the plane. <laughs> there are people who work specifically with kids groups. Prison ministry is huge. Uh, running homeless shelters, uh, food pantries. There is no end to what a deacon can do because primarily we're there to look for the need wherever we are. So you're looking for that desire in a potential candidate. What are some some other questions like when you're like trying to encourage guys to discern this that they should think about? Like one thing I hear all the time when I was thinking about my own vocation, I'm a married man now, but people often were like, hey, you're a young man that goes to church, you should be a priest. <laughs> like, it was the typical line of thinking. Be like, oh no, I actually am called to marriage. And then it just, oh, okay, well then you can be a deacon. And it just felt so like down a flow chart that it really didn't have any <laughs> semblance of like real discernment to me. Um, well, it, it's not a flow chart per se. However, sometimes people say to me, if I've just celebrated a wedding or something, I say, you know, well, you did a wonderful job. You know, you, you would have been a wonderful priest I say, thank you, but I make an awesome deacon, you know, <laughs> because that's who I am. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm ordained almost 29 years, but next, wait, where are we? This week, this Friday, my wife and I married 44 years. So that's a lot of marriage, a lot of, a lot mm -hmm. of living the sacrament of marriage. So when I preach at a wedding, I know what it is to live that sacrament. And I share that with the people that, you know, that are in the church that particular day. Um, for you as a young guy, typically for yourself and also for a young woman who might be discerning religious life for somebody who's a young man who's not married, who we might look at for a priesthood. The key thing really is other people. And I always say that somebody taps you on the shoulder and says, Hey, have you ever thought about being a religious sister? Have you ever thought about the diaconate? I know you're married, but you know, you're a nice young guy. You come to church, you, you know, you, you're in sync with what the church teaches. You know, you seem to have a love for the scripture. Have you ever thought about that? That's the key moment. That is the moment where God speaks from that person directly to you and says, I'm looking for you. Are you listening to me? So right now our church is going through the, the global synod on synodality. And uh, we just had the first report come out a couple weeks ago. And one of the, the big themes there was the place of women in the church, ways that women can be in leadership positions, as well as this question that's been <laughs> under committee study for a couple of years now um, and that of women deacons. So I'm not, I'm not going to ask you, you know, <laughs> whether you're for or against, but I am curious what advice you have for the larger church as it discerns this question of uh, around women deacons. What are, what are the big questions that you think they need to wrestle with? Well, I, I mean, I can only stay with what the church teaches on this. And at this point in time, the church is saying, not right now. Who knows what the future will bring? Um, 
to be honest. I mean, you, you'll you'll probably see more married priests before you would see women in the roles of deacon, whatever. Uh, because we have precedent. I mean, in, in the Maronite church, in the Ukrainian Catholic church, there are married priests. We have married priests. We have guys who were, were Episcopal priests, came over to the church. They came over with their families. So that would be a step that you might see before that will come up. And whenever that is, that is. So I think I would leave that for, you know. There for were those the Vatican that, Committee. <laughs> yeah, I got I to leave it to the people that are a higher pay grade than myself. I'm just a mere <laughs> seminary professor. That's it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> But what you're talking about does touch on uh, another another thing we wanted to talk to you about, which is in your role at the seminary, um, where you know we're dealing with a, a decline in vocations to the priesthood, um, and some ways, you know, sometimes it's lay women picking up the slack by becoming a parish director. Sometimes it's deacons. Um, but one thing that you've also advocated for is encouraging more late in life vocations to the priesthood. So among men who maybe they ha- their spouse has died or, you know, they're just later in life and still have had this long simmering call. So w- why do you think it's important for, re- for us to pay attention to those vocations? This is a great zag, by the way, right? Like the problem is not that our priests are too old. It's that we don't have enough old priests. <laughs> I lo- lo- love the boldness of the take. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting for a guy who's advocating for younger deacons. I'm also the advocate for older priests. And and here's my take on this. Uh, I work here at Sacred Heart Seminary School of Theology, which is an apostolate of the priests of the Sacred Heart. Your acronym is SCJ. That's Latin for the priests of the Sacred Heart. So they are a religious order. That being said, when this seminary was completed in 1968, the uh, priests of the Sacred Heart anticipated that it would be filled with their own seminarians. Now, the priests of the Sacred Heart were around the world, but that was just about when vocation started to decline. But what they found out years ago is that there were quite a number of religious organizations who had guys in their 40s. Oh my goodness, they're so old. They're 40 years old. You know? <laughs> but again, if you go back 50 years, man, if you were like 23, you were a delayed vocation, you know, because you, you it was just high school, college, seminary. That was it. You were ordained about 25 or so, and that, that's how it was. So if a guy, oh my goodness, he was ordained to 30, he was an old guy. But they realized that that old guy, those five years more than somebody who had just been straight through on education, in those five years, he had business experience, he had business acumen, he understood accounting, he's had relationships with women. I'm not talking specifically sexual relationships, I'm talking just about working relationships. And huh, that's pretty cool because... We can put this person into a position of authority relatively quickly because they have world experience. Now, after a few years of that, diocesan bishops came to us and said, well, you're doing that for religious orders. Why not do it for diocese? And that began really the history with Sacred Heart. And over the years, we've had hundreds and hundreds of guys come through here. I mean, right now, we have about 26 guys that are living at our seminary here from Hawaii to Florida. I've got a bunch of guys from Canada, uh, from Montana, uh, from all over the United States. Varying ages. Some are as young as 34. My oldest guy is 69 years old. Will be ordained a priest this coming year. Now, he's been a permanent deacon for seven or eight years. We've had, over the years, I've had, uh, this is my ninth year here at the seminary. And over the years, every year, I have one or two guys who have been permanent deacons for varying amounts of times. 
Um, perhaps they were never married, perhaps their spouse passed away and they felt the calling and their bishop has supported them to come and move forward to the priesthood. We'll have a shorter program of study for them and we can put them right out into the field in a few years because they've already ordained, they've been celebrating the sacraments for years and that's a beautiful ministry. For someone who wasn't previously ordained a deacon, is that a realistic path later in life? Like a Oh, sure. Absolutely. I have a guy right now who's 60 years old, who's not a deacon, somebody who came to me. And, and part of my role in, in the recruiting aspect, my, my, my main role here is I'm the homiletics professor. That's, that's my main role. But my side job is as the director of recruitment. And in that, uh, I help various bishops who have been our sponsors in the past but I get a ton of guys who are 35, 40, 50, 60 years old to say, you know what? I've been thinking about priesthood my whole life. But my diocese says that if you're over 35, you're too old. Do you have a diocese that might be interested in an old guy like me who's 45? Why would a diocese say that? Well, every, every diocese has their own philosophy. Some guys just want to have younger fellas because some people believe that you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Some people believe that it's easy to have somebody who's young and just formed in a very specific manner. The more rural the diocese, typically they're more open to older vocations and, of course, more open to international vocations because they need guys as priests. Do you think that's important for like the intergenerational aspect of, of seminary formation? Like, what, what, Absolutely. What, what's gained with that? Well, think about it. If you're, if you're preaching to a parish, you're not just preaching to people who are 32 years old. You're preaching if the, to people if the who parish are two, of only 32-year-olds yeah. exist, <laughs> I haven't seen it. I, I tease my students and I say, you guys, the young guys, I go, you guys are the anomaly. Your peers don't go to church. Your, your role is going to have to be to rope these guys in and bring them back into church. But, you know, as a preacher, the key thing is, is that you're preaching to people who are, you know, two and 102, and everywhere in between, and you're preaching to people who are on the far left and the far right politically, liberally, conservatively, both in politics and both in church politics. So it's interesting to try to put a, a cohesive message together to bring Jesus' teaching to everybody. That's a good challenge. But I think it's good because what will happen is the older guys will say, huh, you know, I haven't thought about it from this perspective. And the younger guys will say, wow. I didn't realize that those baby boomers knew so much. <laughs> so, uh, so yes, I think I think it's very healthy, to be honest. All right. Thank you so much, Deacon Steve. Before we let you go, we do have one final question that we ask all of our guests. If you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, who would it be and why? I would canonize a former pastor of mine. His name was Dermot or as he would say, Dermot McGann. He's since deceased. He was my pastor for about 12 years. He was an author, a poet, great pastor. He was an excellent preacher. He was just so helpful to me in my ministry over, the, over my life. He was somebody who stood up for what was right and not afraid to say anything about it. I remember in 2002 being at a meeting with all the priests and deacons at my home diocese when the whole sexual abuse scandal broke. And the following week, and I talked to him and I said, D, that was, we called him D. I said, D, you going to say anything about that this week? And he goes, you betcha. 
And he got up, and I always remember this. He said, my friends, he says, during World War II, Winston Churchill came out to the people of England and said, today is a day, of, a bad day at BlackRock. He said, today is a bad day at BlackRock for the church. I am ashamed of some of the conduct of my brother priests, and I will do everything I can to be there to help you and to support you. And for me, that was a pivotal moment because it said to me, no matter how big the elephant in the room is, you have to address it and you have to do it with love and care and compassion. So for that, I would nominate my buddy for the Dermot again for canonization. All right, St. Dermot, pray for us. Deacon Steve, thank you so much for uh, talking talking about vocations with us this week. We uh, really appreciate it. Where, if people want to read your uh, column in Deacon Magazine, uh, where can they find it? Um, you, you, like everything else, you got to have a, subs- a subscription to it, but, um, it is, it is online. You can find the Deacon magazine online. And, um, uh, if anybody would like to contact me more than welcome, if, if any of our listeners that are out there right now are older guys, older guys, guys, let's say 35 and older who uh, are thinking about a vocation to the priesthood and they need somebody to talk to, I am always available. Awesome. All right. Okay. Thanks so much, Steve. Great. A pleasure being with you guys. Thanks so much. All alone again tonight, but you don't seem to forget about yourself. Wondering how it could go so wrong, but you didn't call for help. Let me tell you about the trees and the seas, how it's all connected. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. And now it's time for some housekeeping. What do we have this week, Zach? You might have noticed that uh, for the second week in a row, we dropped a bonus episode in your feed. It's me and Ashley joined by our colleagues, Father Jim McDermott and Sebastian Gomes, talking about parish life in the United States. And we're doing a series of these conversations, uh, both because they're interesting in their own right, but also to help promote America's new documentary, People of God, How Catholic Parish Life is Changing in the United States. So if you haven't listened to those yet, go back, check them out. They're they're really fun. This week, we're talking about parishes closing, clustering, renewing, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, which so is, if you want to hear all of Zach's hot takes on closing parishes, Yeah, because I have them, which might be we need to close more than we already are. Yeah, uh, and you'll enjoy these conversations, even if you haven't seen the documentary, but you'll enjoy them much more if you check out America's groundbreaking documentary, People of God, which you can find at americamagazine.org slash people of God. 
All right. And now we have As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives this week. What's going on this week, Zach? So we are returning to our uh, series talking about uh, Pope Francis's series on discernment, which is of particular importance to this podcast because that is such a big part of Ignatian spirituality. Uh, And this week, Pope Francis is talking about desolation, uh, which longtime, yeah, sad, (laughs) Mm. which uh, longtime listeners of this show will recognize that word because we used to call this face sharing segment consolations and desolations. So we'll start where Pope Francis starts because he talks about how, you know, discernment, decision making, and the way we understand it is not necessarily like a logical procedure, right? It's not a, it's not a flow chart. And I think that's interesting because most people will tell you when you're making decisions to take the, take your emotions out of it, which never is, been good at that. No, it's also <laughs> bad advice. Um, because Pope Francis reminds us that God speaks to us, uh, from our hearts, right. And, and our emotions. So obviously we should be engaging those, but one major emotion that we all encounter is desolation. Yeah. And we want to before we dive into desolation, we want to say that it can the way we describe it can also often sound like depression. Um, and so we just want to give a disclaimer that we're not trying to tell people not to seek out medical help or to pray the sad away. Definitely not. Um, and the line between spiritual, psychological, medical, emotional is not always black and white. And so we want to make that clear. We're not we're not Ignatian professionals or, <laughs> or medical professionals. or medical or yeah. psychological professionals. So we're just we're just like doing our best to wade through um, what it means to to look at desolation in our own lives. Yeah. So here's how Pope Francis defined desolation: darkness of soul, disturbance in it, movement to things low and earthly, the unquiet of different agitations and temptations, moving to want of confidence, without hope, without love. When one finds oneself all lazy, tepid, sad, and is separated from his creator and Lord. Wow. When one finds oneself all lazy, tepid, and sad. Tell uh, me how I really feel, Spoke I know, and, and it's dark out all the time now, <laughs> thanks Daylight Savings. Um, I think this this cuts so deep because it's something we've all experienced at some yeah. point, right? Where you feel just kind of like can't get off the couch, sad, lethargic. Um, I felt like this on like Sundays where I'm trying to drag myself to mass and mm-hmm. I just can't do it. Right. I think there's a ton of threads that we could pull out here and talking about what desolation is. But we want to like lean in on on one thing because it, of how it relates to decision making in particular, which is not not trying to run away and skip over desolation, which I think is a totally natural thing to want to do. But if 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 we are in a hurry to move past it, we miss a lot of important things that it can teach us. Yeah, he says that in in the path of discernment that desolation or feelings of sadness can be a stop sign that that tell you maybe stop where you're going. Just he he uses this phrase, read your sadness. That's hard to do. Two temptations I face are, are running away, he, feeling sad and be like, OK, so now I'm going to go get drinks with friends or <laughs> Watch <laughs> listen Netflix. to a podcast yeah. or whatever or or just kind of like wallowing in it <laughs> and um and, and reading the sadness is somehow neither of those two things mm-hmm. it's it's at once being present to it but in a way kind of detached so mm-hmm. you can you can see it without kind of those dark voices weighing in on your interpretation i guess yeah i i mean i definitely like to try and just like move on from like if i'm if i'm feeling in and almost that feels like the thing i should be doing right because like if i put my hand on a stove i'm not like all right let me pause (laughs) and see and read how exactly this this stove is burning me right now right you kind of just want to take it off and yeah go do a thing 
But desolation does have something important to tell us. Like, why, why am I sad? What does it mean that in this moment I am in desolation? When have I felt like this in the past? What are like things that come up that make me feel this way? What are things that I think about that make me feel the opposite of this, right? Like these are all really good questions to ask. Um, and if we're just trying to move on to the next thing, like you, you never, you never go back and ask, right? You kind of have to do it in the moment in a lot of ways. Um, there's some really good Jesuit advice that was first told to me when I was in college and I hear it all the time, um, which is don't make big decisions in moments of desolation um, because that is another form of just like escapism. And that's big and small. Like it comes up a lot in like big life things where people are like, I don't know what to do about this relationship, about this job, about this 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 move. There, there's a ton of things where you you make a decision out of your lowest point because you're- Because you want to get out of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and I would say like uh, another principle is that like Ignatian discernment always encourages you to make decisions for something and not in fear of something else, right? Like running to run to something instead of running away from something. Right. Don't go grocery shopping when you're hungry. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Same concept that I never, ever listened to. Um, the last thing I'll say is like Francis throws this in too, is that like people try to do all this on their own right? Without talking to talking to anyone, right? And so he says like, without a guide, right? So this is like, obviously he's alluding to spiritual directors. And um, we very much would recommend that as someone who gets to talk to one once a week in Father Eric. Um, I know I've like benefited a lot from, you know, my my spouse. Like sometimes it's someone who's there like regularly who, who, who can see you when you're in one of your moods, like over an extended period of time who can just say like, I notice you're like this when this happens. Like, should we talk about that? And you're like, ah, I, no, I don't want to, but. Sounds like she's good at reading you. <laughs> yeah, she's good at reading my sadness, but am I? I don't know. Um, but it also could, you know, it could be, I, I'm sure you've got like these people in your life that. Oh, are, yeah. No, I've, I've had the same best friend since I was one and a half years old. And so I can hide absolutely nothing from her. Yeah. Um, and she also, obviously, like your wife wants the best for me and isn't going to let me just sabotage myself because I'm making a decision when I'm sad. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, we'll leave you with that this week, listeners, just to, something to think about. We're going to, if you haven't read through uh, these audiences, they're so good. I, you know, in preparation for the show, we get to read them and reread them. And they're like these really short, succinct things about discernment and spirituality that Francis is giving every Wednesday. But maybe this week, just, just think about like, where are times in my life that I felt desolation? How do I typically respond to desolation? And is there someone I should be talking to about it when, when I'm there? So I, so I have a plan for the next time it happens. I'll let you uh, take us out of here with that. All right. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Kevin Jackson and Cristobal Spielman. Our sound engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Loshirt Studio at America Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.